I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today is part two of our episodes on Angela Davis. So if you haven't listened to part one, make sure you hit pause and go back and listen to part one that we released a couple weeks ago. In this episode, we're going to pick up right where we left off with Angela and her friend Helen on the run. We talk about where she goes to next. She goes to Detroit, then to Miami, and then back to New York. Then we talk about her arrest and imprisonment. We go through some more of the storyline of her in solitary confinement. Then we cover her trial and go over the verdict. Then we end the episode with some quotes from Angela herself. We hope you enjoy the discussion. So Angela was on the run and there was a family that took her in. They were strangers. She didn't even know them, but Hardy and John took her in and they reoriented their entire lives around keeping her safe. Their schedules, their work schedules, their travel schedule took pains on themselves in order to keep her safe from being captured. But before too long, she had to move on from there. And so she went on to Detroit. And while she was traveling, she saw on a television in a hotel false claims about herself and about what was happening. And clearly these false claims being reported in the news were coming from the FBI. So the news said, Today, Angela Davis wanted on charges of murder, kidnapping, and conspiracy in connection with the Marion County Courthouse shootout was seen leaving the home of her parents in Birmingham, Alabama. She is known to have attended a meeting at the local branch of the Black Panther Party. So none of this is true. (laughs) And then they say, when Birmingham authorities finally caught up with her, she managed to outrun them by driving her 1959 Blue Rambler. So they're pinning her. First of all, they're just saying she's wanted on charges of murder and kidnapping. When in reality, remember, it just had been guns registered to her that had been used in a crime. Mm-hmm. But there was no evidence and there, and she had nothing to do with the crime. So the news isn't nuancing that. They're just saying, pinning her as a criminal. And then they're saying that she's like on the run from the police, driving away in a car in a state that she wasn't even in. Mm. So just imagine that that would be disorienting and almost like creepy. I mean, it feels like a authoritarian state at that point that's hunting you down, spreading lies about where you are, who you are, what you've done. It's dystopian. It's sketchy at the least. Right. Yeah. So she fled by car to New York then and by train down to Miami. And she was wearing a disguise with makeup and a wig to change her appearance to avoid being recognized. In Miami, she barricaded herself into a house and she said it basically felt like a prison. Like she couldn't go outside, couldn't travel anywhere. She was just kind of stuck in this cell of her own making to try to stay safe from getting caught. She ran out of money there. She was with a friend named David and they ran out of money and had to do something or change something. They couldn't reach out to any of their contacts because everyone was being monitored. This was during the era when the FBI would tap everyone's phones so they couldn't reach out to anyone for help. Yeah. So they decided to go back up to New York 
And so they went up and went out, took the risk to go out because you got to keep your sanity, went out and saw a movie. And on the way back from the movie to the hotel, Angela's mind started just playing kind of tricks on her, thinking that everyone was an undercover officer. She describes in her autobiography that this was something that would just regularly happen, being on the run in this kind of dystopian scenario where the FBI is after you, putting you on the most wanted list, all this stuff. She started to just be super conscious of everyone around her and whether they were undercover officers. And this situation started to feel like everyone was watching her. And they go up to the room on this elevator and at the last second a man in a suit climbs on and she was like I think this is it I think that not letting us get on this elevator without them because they want to make sure I don't run and they get up on the hallway to the room all of a sudden a, a man pops out of one of the doors of an adjacent room and it really was it and she realized okay this is the sting they're gonna arrest me so she knew she knew before like when as soon as he got on she mm-hmm. had that feeling and she poised herself Mm -hmm. held her head up high just prepared herself for the moment yeah she held her head up high and she i think she probably knew in that case like if she ran they would probably use that as an excuse to shoot her yeah so she didn't run she just held her head high and they arrested her they shouted over and over again whether like are you angela davis are you angela davis because in her memoir just wonders how many times they did this with other black women who had been called in. And they immediately go to fingerprint her because they need to know whether she is. Because really, they're doing this because probably somebody, some random stranger, spotted her and said, oh, I think this is Angela Davis. So they're going through this whole thing. But they probably went through the same thing with other women who were misidentified as Angela Davis. And brutalized. Um, Yeah, I'm sure. Yep. And so they didn't know it was her at first, and she didn't divulge that, but they took her fingerprints and pretty quickly they did realize it was her. So right after she was captured, President Richard Nixon congratulated the FBI on air for their capture of this dangerous terrorist Angela Davis. The FBI drove her to an undisclosed location in an unmarked car. An FBI agent sat down to interrogate her. She knew that they couldn't legally hold her without a lawyer, but I mean, through the whole early part of the arrest saga, they blatantly did not follow her right to an attorney. You'll see, it comes back a few times, that they didn't let her access her attorney. Finally, they did let her call him. She called for an attorney. She got Gerald Lefcourt, a lawyer who was famous for defending 21 Black Panthers in New York. But when they finally did let her call him, the phone was cut, so she didn't get through. So through the whole process, they dangled in front of her her basic constitutional rights, and then... Over and over again, they pulled them up and away from her. From there, she was led to a woman's prison in Greenwich Village in New York. The prison bus pulled up, and she realized that every single woman who was getting off the bus to go into the prison was black or Hispanic. At shift change, a black guard came on duty, and she was kind and sympathetic to Angela. Angela asked about the delay and why she hadn't had a chance to talk to her attorney still, And the woman kind of explained there was jurisdiction issues that they were working out where both the feds and the New York State Police didn't want to be responsible for honoring that right for her to speak to her attorney. And so they were just kind of, neither one was taking the initiative. Yeah. So Angela was a, she was a federal prisoner 
So the marshals were the one who should have given her a call to an attorney. And now both sides, the federal government and New York, they were now pointing fingers and refusing to give her the call. And so there was, of course, as is customary in the black experience when it comes to imprisonment and unjust imprisonment, there, there was a stripping of dignity. And Angela, per the policy for all the prisoners, had to submit to vaginal and rectal searches for contraband. The prison subjected prisoners to such exams every time they left for court appearances. I don't, I don't think normal people think about or realize how badly we treat prisoners, how much dignity is stripped, how much we dehumanize them. We talked before about how in the German prison system, the goal is rehabilitation and prisoners have their own cells that have doors that lock from the inside. They can cook their own food. They give them dignity versus the American system. We just treat people in ways that we should never, no one should ever treat another human being. And not only that, but they treat prison, like the families horribly. Mm. So it just kind of discourages people from visiting their relatives. And I know that from personal experience with my mother-in-law, I mean, just horribly nasty, vicious, malicious. I, I mean, I don't want to go into detail, but when you talk about rehabilitation, they're not there to be rehabilitated. And even just stripping the dignity of hu- like human touch, for example, how so many prisoners are not even allowed to sit with their families. They have to sit on the other side of glasses now, or they've had to sit sit across from each other with the glass separating them. But now it's even, they do virtual visits. And so just mm-hmm. imagine how that strips people of the powerful element of human touch. Mm-hmm. It's just horrific. I, I think it's tied into like the whole system is, I mean, again, it just seems such a complex and huge. There's some things that aren't complex about it. It's like the way it exists is complex, but the system itself isn't really that com- like like I can understand somewhat what the system is doing and how it was built. But prisoners in prisons were built to like not be near normal people. So like you probably don't even see I bet most Americans like a huge chunk of Americans never even see a prison and go years and years without it without like taking some random road somewhere. So it's like we, we try to like purposefully push them to the outside. And yeah, it's not for rehab, rehabilitation purposes. It's all punitive. It's been, it's like that's what it was built to do. It was built to separate them. It was built to mm-hmm. treat them like they aren't humans. And, and prisoners are often deliberately put in places far away from their home to make it difficult for their families to visit. I mean, that's not like written down. Right. codified, but it's a common practice for them not to be moved to the nearest prison to their and, family. And it's just like another uncomfortable thing of, that Americans, we don't want to talk about. It's like people don't know where they stand maybe on things. And so they just feel uncomfortable talking about having a stance that, you know what I mean? And I just think it's mm-hmm. a lot of people don't want to even talk about it. They like, they like know it's a problem. Like, yeah, it probably is a problem. It would seem like a lot of people would think that, but then they don't ever want to talk about it. And then it's this thing, well, the system is imperfect, but when you talk about the system being perfect, not being perfect, we're talking about human lives. And that imperfect system has convicted innocent people primarily people, black people, indigenous people, people of color. And so it's not like, when you, th- when you think about 
daycare workers. The system isn't perfect, and one child gets left in a hot car and dies. That's horrific, you know, and it doesn't matter. It like, it like when you think about someone dying, a child mm-hmm. dying because of being left in a hot car or hot bus from a daycare worker or some type of negligence, that's still a life. Yeah. And because people are distanced from these situations or it's not happening to them, it doesn't matter. It's out of sight and out of mind. Yeah. If in that scenario, if it, and that, that kind of thing has happened before, but what will happen is there's lawsuits there's na- right. national legislation that comes out, like state, local, and sometimes federal legislation that'll make changes. There's journalistic coverage of what happened, and so there's this the daycare spotlight. will get shut down. Yeah, there will there'll be consequences and yep. there'll be changes. But the problem is in prisons, there are. I mean, I just found out this week there are a hundred or more prisoners in Texas in our state that have been in solitary confinement for more than twenty years how that is legal and not cruel and unusual punishment, how we uh, as Texans support a system and don't push back on us, like why there's not an outcry to politicians for 100 plus prisoners for 20 years in complete isolation, (sighs) psychological torment. And the idea that we would say, oh, it's not a perfect, that whole argument is kind of frustrating to hear too because, you know, we get one order missed when we're at Red Lobster, they come back with the wrong order, and we're like, "I want to speak to the fit. manager. Let me speak to the man. I'm getting my meals free, right? Mm-hmm. But we wouldn't just say, well, you know, the Red Lobster system. And Red Lobster is not a uh, sponsor, so <laughs> sorry if you're. <laughs> but like, we would never say, oh, the Red Lobster system is broken. You know, that's just that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like some people probably do that, but most people don't. System. We don't. I, you would think like within our like criminal justice system, we would be making a big deal out of some of the disparities that happen especially people that are on death row where major like there's a chunk of like what is it one out of every nine or something what yeah. is brian stevenson's yeah one out of nine or one out of ten something like that somewhere close to ten percent are actually not guilty of what they were being sent to be are ultimately for. proven to not be are guilty. proven to not be guilty and so he i think he uses that whole like well you know if one out of every ten planes fell out of the sky that we yeah. would never let that happen. How that's an right. acceptable failure. But right? we would let that happen in our criminal justice system. It's a it's a big deal. It's right. Yeah, it's people's lives, and we can't just assume that not just that side of things, like the criminal side of things, but also the people that are policing that system, that are judges, that are you know prosecutors. Those people aren't perfect. And so, what do you think the difference is of like a Red Lobster waiter not being perfect versus like a federal? judge mm-hmm. you know what i mean so it's yeah. it's a serious or even thing even somebody getting food poison at the restaurant mm-hmm. or somebody slipping on the floor you know because mm-hmm. it's wet yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> or so being served hot coffee yeah or mickey that's mouse supposed to be hot or mickey mouse didn't smile at their kid at disney on their birthday right yeah. you better watch out yeah well and bringing it back to angela's story when she was in prison. She talks about how through the thick prison walls, she could hear the faint chants, free Angela Davis. And at one point, a black guard slipped her a piece of candy. Angela refused to eat it in case it was meant to induce a jailhouse suicide. And that just makes me think about Sandra Bland and the false narrative that she did commit, you know, that she committed suicide. And I don't believe her family does not believe, no one believes that she committed suicide. Many people believe that she was dead on arrival, honestly. But that's a real threat. And I think about how there might have been 
black, indigenous people of color who worked in the prison who were basically doing the bidding of these prison officials under threat of their jobs, their own lives. I mean, we're talking about this is in the 60s, and she's having to think about not eating a piece of candy from someone who looks just like her. Mm-hmm. But I love the the solidarity of one prison inmates knowing her story and having hope from her story and cheering her on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both from within the prison and then there was little windows where she could peer outside and there was also came to be some action out on the streets of people yeah. supporting her. But then it talks about how that morning a prison employee brought her breakfast and the woman was black and exchanged a couple of kind words. There was nowhere to lay the food, so she set it on the ground where a roach quickly discovered it. And the woman whispered, don't worry about anything. We are all on your side. And so there were people working for her and work, like working with her, caring for her, you know, showing compassion from within in that mm-hmm. system. Yeah, she talks about how some of the black guards the kind of strange dynamics of that job for them because it was one of the better paying jobs that they could get. And they oftentimes they wanted to try to bring dignity to the prisoners through their work as right. guards. Right. But then also the system itself was kind of broken from the top down where they had little ability to do that. So for instance, the guards, including the black guards, were supposed to keep a regular log of all Angela's activities. They're supposed to kind of write down everything that she did as they watched her. And some of them would tell her about that and they were trying to work within the system to give her a little bit of leeway, but there was little that they could do to to kind of do that. Before too long, uh, especially I, I think because the fellow prisoners were so sympathetic to Angela and the prison wanted to separate her from the other prisoners and they moved her to the mental block. Mm. And they said that they were doing that for her protection because they said that they didn't want other prisoners to hurt her, which was clearly a lie because the other prisoners are chanting free Angela Davis. Exactly. But that's what the prison claimed. So then she realized that inside the mental block, when she went in there, all the other women seemed elusive, seemed to not be really paying attention, not to be all there. And then came to discover quickly that each morning they were made to take Thorazine with each of their morning meals. And sometimes they would refuse to take it. Sometimes they would be more lucid. And she would, they would explain to her that they had pretended to take it, but they spat out. But they were being forcibly being medicated to induce almost like a waking comatose state wow. in these prisoners. And, and it was without consent. It was not up to them. So Angela was, was in those conditions. And then her lawyer worked feverishly to get her transferred out of the mental block, succeeding after a week. But then fellow prisoners started asking her about her politics. She didn't hesitate to share with them. The next day, in response, the jail moved her to solitary as punishment for sharing her views. Yep, one thing after the next. Yep. So Angela pushed back on that. Again, her attorneys, it was just a constant fight to try to give her basic human rights, basic constitutional rights as the prison continually took these steps to oppress her. She met with her lawyers and they decided to sue the government for discriminating against her as a political prisoner. And she made the tactical decision to do a hunger strike to bring more attention to her isolation. So she learned through the grapevine that women all over the jail were doing a hunger strike in 
solidarity and support for her. Mm-hmm. Which it's crazy just to even reflect. This wasn't a prison. This was a jail. Like she hasn't been convicted of anything yet. And these are already the conditions that she's been put wow. through. Like she's just, this is pre-trial. Wow. These are the conditions. Roaches everywhere and the, the cruelty, the solitary. What do you think they're so worried about her doing? I mean, she's, she's not in prison. Like, what, are the, what is, why is the president, why are the feds, why are, why is this, why is she such a big deal? She's just been on the ascent as a leader in the black power movement. Right. And there's more and more people who are tuned into her story. And the more they push back on her, the more it has tuned people into her story. And so she became one of, there was multiple kind of rallying cries, free the Soledad brothers, free Angela Davis. There was like these flashpoints of the Black Heart Movement. She became one. And then anytime she spoke, her message got out to a lot of people. So they wanted to suppress her, silence her. Well, and we got to think about one, J. Edgar Hoover was on a whole campaign to fight against what he would consider the equivalent to like a, a like a messiah within the black community. So there was that all of the black, the emerging black leaders were being followed, recorded, wiretapped. That was Martin Luther King. That was Malcolm X. And so, you know, so many leaders were being followed and they were a threat to the government because the government was fighting against equality. And Angela had a proximity to whiteness as a black woman who was educated, who had traveled. She was a threat. I could see why they would think she was a threat because she had been to Russia. She had been... Studied in Germany. Studied in Germany. I don't think she had been to Russia just yet, but she had studied in Germany. She had taken up communist views and there was this whole propaganda against communism and she was a black woman. I I even think the fact that she was a light-skinned black woman, you know, with, with... the standard of beauty that white America has up, uplifted. Like she had a proximity to whiteness and that white people would listen to her. She was a college professor. You see what I'm saying? She had access to young black, young white people. And I could completely see, I could totally see why they deemed her a threat and why they needed to, they wanted to get rid of her. Mm-hmm. So here she is in solitary and on hunger strike and 10 days into the hunger strike that many of the prisoners are joining in to, a federal court ordered the prison to release her from the maximum security and from isolation. So finally, she got to go and be amongst other prisoners. And one of the things she talks about in the midst of that was just some of the other cruelties that she witnessed. One of them was the way that prisoners would come into the prison with drug addictions and the prisoner the prison guards would just lock them in a cell and force them through the night without any assistance any medical aid to withdraw from the drugs as they moaned or cried out in agony in the midst of all the other prisoners they would be trying to sleep and they would just be hearing the cries and the moans of these women who were withdrawing from drugs and they wouldn't provide medical attention and and sometimes they the women would die and yeah, I don't know if a lot of people know that. Like, you can't just, most of the time, it's actually without assistance, like, medically. Yeah, that's what happens. Like, even nowadays, like, on a lot of drugs, mm-hmm. it's really, you can't, it's not just a, you just quit it tomorrow and then normal life. It's mm-hmm. a really, it's a really hard process. And without medical, yeah, they, they could easily die. Well, yeah. and that's the difference between it being criminalized against minorities 
and seen as a mental health issues with white people. I mean, we've already established that most of the people in the prison were black and Hispanic women. Mm-hmm. And so there's no value in their lives in that treating them for the mental health issue, the, the condition of drug addiction, because it's used to criminalize them. Mm-hmm. So she, at one point, and the other prisoners, in solidarity with one of the women who was withdrawing, they refused to close their cell doors, which they were supposed to do for the locks to engage. They refused to close themselves in until the guards got this woman a doctor. And and in that case, the guards did relent, and they got a doctor for this woman, maybe saving her life. And then she even talks about how, you know, a lot of those women were just spending months in jail simply because they didn't have $50 to make their bail. Yeah. So they hadn't even really been tried for their crimes, like you said. I mean, just mm-hmm. a complete injustice. And they're jailed because of their poverty. And the crazy thing is the cost of the system to jail them is probably tens of thousands of dollars because they can't pay $50 for bail. Like The system is criminalizing poverty rather than bringing justice to the poor. So then she eventually she was extradited to California. And there's kind of a saga, a whole process of that extradition. There was growing support as all this continued to make different headlines. John Lennon of the Beatles wrote a song in support of Angela Davis. The largest Presbyterian denomination helped pay for her legal defenses. So, I mean, you can see a broad spectrum of support that came behind her. James Baldwin wrote a letter to her. He said, Some of us, white and black, Know how great a price has already been paid to bring into existence a new consciousness, a new people, an unprecedented nation. If we know and do nothing, we are worse than the murderers hired in our name. If we know, then we must fight for your life as though it were our own, which it is, and render impassable with our bodies the corridor to the gas chamber. For if they take you in the morning, they will be coming for us that night. And then what is an, one of my favorite people, my sheroes of all time, Aretha Franklin, she went against her own father, who was a very well-known, very well-respected minister in Detroit, Reverend C.L. Franklin. She went against him and wanted to offer to pay for Angela's bail. And I have a quote from Aretha. She said, my daddy, Detroit's Reverend C.L. Franklin, says, I don't know what I'm doing. Well, I respect him, of course, but I'm going to stick by my beliefs. Angela Davis must go free. Black people will be free. I've been locked up for disturbing the peace in Detroit, and I know you got to disturb the peace when you can't get no peace. Jail is hell to be in. I'm going to see her free if there is any justice in our courts, not because I believe in communism, but because she's a black woman and she wants freedom for black people. I have money. I got it from black people. They've made me financially able to have it. And I want to use it in ways that will help our people. I love Aretha Franklin. Mm -hmm. And when you think about how celebrities of the time, who to be a black singer, actor, you had to walk a fine line of whiteness. And for there there to be so many who who put their careers and their lives and their money on the line to support each other and stand in solidarity and to fight injustice and go to jail and go to prison for their beliefs. It's just so powerful. And that's why another reason why they wanted to squat. I mean, once you get a movement like that going where someone is in the forefront, really 
willing to do what it takes to fight for equality and equity, and then other people of prominence get behind it, it's dangerous mm-hmm. or it's perceived as dangerous. And Angela was definitely a threat to the, to the status quo. So then two things happened in pretty rapid succession. Uh, George Jackson, who was one of the Soledad brothers and one that Angela had like a special relationship with, a correspondence with, he was murdered by prison guards, shot in the back. And this brought a spotlight to Soledad prison. The, the Soledad brothers were ultimately acquitted for the false accusations against them. They had basically, if you'll recall from last episode, they had just been randomly chosen to take responsibility, to take the fall Mm -hmm. for unsolved murder in the prison. And George Jackson, he would have been cleared if not for this. He was murdered, shot in the back. And then on the heels of that, Angela was transferred to San Jose jail and put into a cell it was filthy. There was standing water on the ground. They kind of offered and then rescinded breakfast to her. Angela's lawyers were so distraught when they saw the conditions of this cell. It was just like a tiny cell the size of a closet. And they, they drew a scaled drawing of it in order to show the movement what was happening and how she was being treated. Yeah. And again, another reminder, she had not been convicted of anything at this right. point. This was the pre-conviction conditions that people particularly black people, were being subjected to. So there's a bell twist. While she was awaiting trial, the California Supreme Court overturned the death penalty. This opened the door for Angela to get a new bail hearing. She had originally been denied bail because she had been charged with a capital crime, but now there was no capital crimes in California. Under pressure from the growing movement, the judge granted Angela's bail, and she said, why me and not the others? I could not get rid of a sense of guilt but I knew my freedom would be significant only if I used it to push on for the freedom of those whose conditions I had shared. And on the opening day of Angela's trial, the Soledad brothers were freed as not guilty. And of course, Angela rejoiced, but also felt a sting of grief because George had not lived to be cleared. Mm -hmm. I love her humility and her instinctive response being the why me, but also to use that freedom for a, a purpose and for others. So then she she goes into her trial, and it was a long and grueling trial. The prosecutors were trying to paint her as a helpless, emotional woman. So her attorneys had been very careful to try to screen the jurors to make sure the jurors didn't have sexist stereotypes, both to avoid racist and sexist stereotypes, which speaks to the reality of those both being a dynamic for Angela as a black woman. Intersectionality, yes. Mm Mm-hmm. And so the prosecutors took letters that Angela had written to George, and these letters were clearly speaking in a metaphor. And the prosecutor tried to, there was like wording in the letters metaphorically. So in this metaphor, there was violence that was being used to reference a a bigger picture that wasn't actually talking about real violence. And the prosecutor reading this letter and he was just like emphasizing all the, the, the words that implied any kind of violence. It, it almost seemed to dawn on the prosecutor halfway through the letter <laughs> that, oh, like this metaphor is describing something that actually cuts in the opposite direction. It's actually talking about violent nonviolence, like about, mm. about nonviolent resistance. And he realized kind of halfway through the letter that it undercut his own argument. And it's like the power just kind of drained away from, from what he was doing and saying. 
And Angela and her lawyers could look at the jury throughout this thing, and they could see sympathy on the faces of many of them. And they thought that they were in a good position. But then when the trial came to an end and the verdict was finally going to be read, the jury returned to give Angela the verdict, and all of them seemed so flat, so unsympathetic, so just cold that she had this moment where she was like, this went the other way. How, how could this happen? She says, I was searching for some explanation of this transformation of the jury's posture. Their faces said conviction, guilty, but this was impossible, illogical, absurd, unless the whole thing had been a grand hoax, unless they had consciously tried to delude us these last months. I wanted to rush over and rescue my mother from the consequences, born of desperation and incomprehension. Those disjointed thoughts shook me so furiously, I had to strain to hear the clerk as he read the papers. The first count was murder. There was a loud, clear, not guilty. Heavy sobs fell into the moment of silence that followed. It was Franklin. I felt like everyone was breathing deep and hard and with the rhythm of a single being. The second count was kidnapping. Not guilty. Rang out again. Franklin was crying louder. I did not think I could hold on much longer, but I had to hear the last verdict, the conspiracy count. My right hand tightened around Kendra's, the other around Margaret's. When the clerk read off not guilty for the third time, we screamed, laughed, cried, and embraced, completely oblivious to the banging of the judge's gavel. In her joy, my mother looked so beautiful. She reminded me of the photographs of her when she was very young. I felt happier for her than for anyone else, including myself. So in this dramatic moment where there was this tug of war and she thought at the last second that it was going to go the other way, but she was set free. And she, in the aftermath of that, has been propelled into a lifetime of advocacy for the rights of prisoners, for the rights of the falsely accused, for the rights of political prisoners, those who are silenced, those who don't have a voice. She has been somebody who has spent her life speaking up for those who can't speak for themselves. And I love that in this ironic twist that the persecution of the government against her, if anything, helped to build and solidify and found her platform Yep. to work and be an advocate for, for justice. Globally. Mm-hmm. Globally. Fight, yeah, fighting for human rights, indigenous people's rights, racial justice, prison reform, abolition of the death penalty, an end of imperialism, anti-poverty, anti-war, women's liberation, black liberation, welfare reform, public education, child care, peace, nuclear disarmament, and more. Yeah, a whole lifetime. And she's traveled all over the globe in one I don't know the exhaustive list, but I know she's been to, for instance, she talked about she's been to Australia like a dozen different times to speak at conferences there. And she's been all over the world and affecting change and justice. And I mean, a lot of these issues that you just read are international issues, uh, ending imperialism and nuclear disarmament. And And she taught the next generation. So she went on to teach African-American studies at Claremont College from 1975 to 77. Attendance at the course she taught was limited to 26 students out of the more than 5,000 on campus, and she was forced to teach in secret because alumni benefactors didn't want her to indoctrinate the general student population with communist thought. College trustees made arrangements to minimize her appearance on campus, limiting her seminars to Friday evenings and Saturdays when campus activity is low, they said. 
Her classes moved from one classroom to another, and the students were sworn to secrecy. And then she also joined San Francisco State University. I remember when she came to the University of Memphis, where I was in 1992. It was February 7, 1992, and she spoke at the university. And she has had such a major influence on young academics, college students, young people for generations. My parents' generation, my generation, and now the generations to come. And, I mean, Angela was just, she is just a force. She is an amazing woman who grew up in such a small town in dire circumstances on Dynamite Hill. And she went from Dynamite Hill to taking the global stage in the name of justice. Mm-hmm. Went through all this persecution and used that to move towards justice. She said, I have always thought it was fortuitous that I was among those who had escaped the worst. One small twist of fate and that I might have drowned in the muck of poverty and disease and illiteracy. That is why I never felt I had the right to look upon myself as being any different from my sisters and brothers who did all this suffering for all of us. And this quote is one that I really love. And I think that people should listen to Black women. They should hear Black women. They should amplify the voices of Black women. She says, when Black women win victories, it is a boost for virtually every segment of society. Hmm. So to close out, uh, we'll close with lyrics from John Lennon's song that was in support of Angela Davis. He says, Angela, can you hear the earth is turning? Angela, the world watches you. Angela, you soon will be returning to your sisters and brothers in the world. Sister, you are still a people teacher. Sister, your word reaches far. Sister, there's a million different races, but we all share the same future in the world. They gave you sunshine. They gave you sea. They gave you everything but the jailhouse key. They gave you coffee. They gave you tea. They gave you everything but equality. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. This is just a reminder that we are working on a book that we plan on releasing later this year. So be on the lookout for that. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast, you can support us for $5 a month on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we are interviewing Dr. Christina Edmondson and Chad Brennan on their recently released book, Faith anti-racism. It was a great conversation and we're excited to release that episode the next couple weeks. We'll leave you with this quote from Angela Davis herself. I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept.